This is Commander Mark Devine. Welcome to the show. Hey, if you're not on our email list, then you're missing out. Every week we've got great content coming at you from my blog and SealFit TV, and also some special offers only available to those who are on our email list. So go to SealFit.com and drop your email into the opt-in form on the homepage. All right, let's get started. Hoo-yah. A bunch of badasses, if you know what I mean, they're coming out of the sky, out of the sea, and on land, gonna take it to the enemy. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UDT. Okay, hey folks, this is uh, Commander Mark Devine. Coming at you from SealFit and Unbeatable Mind with our monthly podcast. I'm super stoked to have Charles Eisenstein with us. Um, Charles and I have met recently, um, and I contacted him after reading his book, um, A More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, uh, which is an incredible book. And um, we're going to have a really interesting conversation with Charles about uh, things that are really important to all of us. And um, without, you know, peeling the onion too much in the introduction, I'd just like to um, say hi to Charles and thank you very much for making time for us today. So, Yeah, uh, yeah. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure. And I'm, I'm glad you didn't read the bio as the introduction. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that, that always happens to me when I go on podcasts. And I'm like, you know, I, I need yeah. to go update that bio, by the way, right? Right. <laughs> the bios don't really capture the true spirit of what's going on. So, yeah, man, you... Um, You've got a pretty broad scope of interests, and your writing just really jumped out at me. Um, probably because I'm I'm so into yoga and the Eastern arts, you know, because I've been training them since my early 20s. But can you um, just give us a sense, give our listeners a sense of who who you are, and you know, kind of where you started to get inspired um, to be a writer and to you know some of these ideas that uh, you espouse? Yeah, I mean, how far back should I go? You know, well. Uh, Usually, I mean, I, I can go back to... You were born being, at a very young age, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Somewhere in probably upstate New York. But, but I had this feeling that there was something wrong in the world mm-hmm. uh, and that the world was supposed to be more beautiful than what had been offered to me as normal. Right. I didn't know what the wrongness was, uh, but I think, and I think this is a pretty common feeling among young people. You know, we call it idealism. Okay. Uh, the, the, the feeling that, you know, I'm here for a purpose, Right. I'm here to find a mission and to dedicate myself to it and to contribute to something that's meaningful and beautiful to me. Right. And the process by which that feeling is betrayed and and destroyed is tragic. It is. But it yeah. happens to most people in our society. Right. Uh, and I think one, you know, I know that you're from a military background. I think that that one of the drivers that brings people into the military is that they that is a desire to act. Right. on that impulse right. to serve, to serve something. Absolutely, absolutely right. That and was I, my own I, experience, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, there's a lot of economic factors and all kinds of, you know, ideological things. But, but underneath some of, you know, there's also this, this desire to be of service, which right. is universal in human beings. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, right now, I'm, in my mind, I'm linking it to fitness, mm-hmm. which is the world that you're involved in now. Right. And the first question that comes up to, for me is fitness for what? Right. 
You know, is it, is, is it fitness if you're plunked down in nature that you can survive by out competing the other animals? Right. Like what good does that do? You know, like what are we being becoming fit for? Right. And I think that, that your kind of evolution, as I see it, you know, toward more, um, a more expansive understanding of fitness Mm -hmm. that includes the mind, the emotions, the spirit. Um, I think that in a way that that's, um, an answer to that question fit for what? Like it's a search, right? You know, what am I really here for? Right. I love that. I love that context. And you're right. I mean, essentially what we try to educate folks is that we, we develop ourselves toward mastery of the, of our being of our humanness so that we can serve humanity. Yeah. And so I get it. My body is a, a vessel. If it's not fit and strong, then I can't serve my you know, I can't fulfill my purpose, which is to serve through teaching, through example, through inspiration, through training. And everyone's got their own, you know, what the Buddhists would call dharma. That's their purpose. But, you know, if, you're, if your vessel, if your physical being isn't strong, then you're not able to fulfill very effectively, let's put it that way. Yeah. Although, you know, it depends. I mean, I've run into people who are serving in a beautiful way, mm-hmm. who are not what we would call fit. Right, right. You know. Right. Uh, and sometimes these people, they're fit in some other way. Right. That's you true. Know, they have some other kind of emotional depth, emotional resources, psychological resources, uh, and courage that just blows me away. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that at all. At the same time, you can just wonder what they're leaving on the table uh, due to the energy that is drained through the health issues and through the, you know, lack of, you know, optimal bodily functioning. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's just, just a theory that they might even be able to contribute more and be happier and more peaceful in the process. If their if their bodies were also taken care of and not, you know, not everyone has to be a Navy SEAL or fit like a SEAL. That's for sure. And I don't believe that at all, but general health, you know, I think that there's probably many different, axes of development, you know, or right. axes of fitness. Right. And so, you know, someone like you might have something to offer to someone like them and they might have something to offer to you Absolutely. that is in your blind spot, you right. know, and we're right. kind of all becoming more fit together <laughs> in a really <laughs> expansive way. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, you told me a story uh, that I found very inspiring about four Navy SEALs in Afghanistan. Right. Yeah. We, it was, it was a few years ago. Let me retell it now just to contextualize it for everyone else. And most of our, our, our listeners um, probably have some familiarity with it. Anyways, it was Operation Red Wing was the name of the military mission. The military loves to name missions, you know, after something that um, has some meaning, usually to the namer, <laughs> but nobody else. So I'm not sure where Red Wing came from. But um, anyways, uh, so four SEALs uh, led by a lieutenant, young lieutenant from Long Island named Michael Murphy were dropped into the um, Hindu Kush region of Afghanistan, and they were on a reconnaissance mission to try to track and identify a known, you know, Taliban um, bad guy, right? And at any rate, their mission was compromised. They were, you know, they were doing everything fine, except in, the, in that region, you know, the, these mountains are traversed by goat herders, right, shepherds. And so they were compromised by a, um, a little boy who then quickly alerted his dad. And these guys were just the village shepherds. And interestingly, um, Murphy and the, and the three other guys, um, Axelrod, Danny Dietz, and Marcus Luttrell, um, had a unique conversation 
One that wouldn't be kind of expected in a military setting, and I think largely as we discussed, based upon their um, their age and you know some some memes that are going on in society, you know, at, at that kind of millennial age group. And so, you know, whereas in my time, we would have just shot the guys and carried on with the mission, right, or, or changed our position, right? And, and the military would have applauded us as a, you know, as that being the right action. And what these guys did is they debated and they decided that it wasn't in their, it wasn't their duty to kill the innocent shepherd and his, or, you know, disrupt their lives in such an egregious way. And so they let them go. Now, of course, uh, on the spot, I'm sure in the moment it wasn't quite as um, clean as I just <laughs> stated, but um, that's what they decided to do. And that led to, of course, the, uh, the kid bounding down the hill, uh, running in and, and alerting the local Taliban commander who then sent a, a posse of about 60 to, it's really unknown, 60 to 100 guys up and tracked and uh, basically began uh, engaged in a firefight with the four SEALs. So they were completely compromised, and they were in this fight for their life, you know, tumbling down the mountain. It was captured actually very accurately in the movie Lone Survivor, uh, because there was actually a lone survivor, and that was Marcus Luttrell, who um, who ended up getting blown into like a, a crevasse or a ditch right at dusk, and so that you know the darkness really protected him. But everyone else, Axelrod and Danny Dietz, were killed on their way down the mountain, you know, fighting, fighting, fighting. You know, it's estimated that a lot of the Taliban also lost, lost their lives. And then um, Murphy, though, you know, being the responsible lieutenant and responsible for the lives of his teammates, was trying like heck to get support lined up, but he couldn't get, um, couldn't get any radio reception because of the mountains. And so he literally climbed to a high spot, exposing himself to the Taliban to use his cell phone, was able to call back to his uh, tactical operations center and, um, you know, request support. And that was a, you know, life-ending action. And he knew it would be, right? He knew it would be the end, um, but he did it to, you know, to save his teammates. That was his kind of sense of duty or sense of honor. So that, that's really the story. The reason yeah. we know about the story is because Luttrell then survived. He was uh, recovered by an, another guy from the village who was, a medic, I think, a doctor. And the doctor protected him. And, and they actually had this kind of code of conduct that if you take someone into your, into your protection, that you, know, you protect him with your life. And so there was this interesting standoff at the end where you know, we had one Afghanistan professional protecting the American soldier or sailor, Navy SEAL, and the Taliban essentially basically surrounding the village saying, we're going to kill you and everyone in this village if you don't give them, give them to us, you know. And wow. they wouldn't give them up. It was so really, really interesting, you know, cultural dilemmas and, and dialogue that, that could be had around that whole thing. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when you first told me the story, what, what struck me, uh, you told a shorter version of it, you right. know, and, and that key moment of choice where they had to decide, uh, are we going to preserve our mission by killing these totally innocent goat herders, right? Or are we going to let them go and compromise our mission? And, and they chose the second one, but my, my thought was, you know, actually they are being dutiful to their true mission, right? Because their true mission is in service to all of humanity. Right. And, it's not actually in service to whatever, you know, geopolitical goals 
that the United States is pursuing in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's kind of a, a proxy for the deep desire that, that I was talking about earlier. Right. And there was once a time that the interests of the, the geopolitical interests of the United States uh, seemed to most people here mm-hmm. to be identical with the well-being of all humanity in the planet. Mm-hmm. Because we were, you know, the source of freedom and democracy, and we were going to bring it to the world and bring development to the world and free markets and make, you know, and we were, you know, the global good guys. Mm-hmm. And not to really get into a political discussion, but right. that that version of of how to create a better world is not compelling anymore right. to many people. And right. we're we're expanding into another um you know, another story, I would say, where, where the story that we live in is transitioning. And, and sure. in the new story, this decision was uh, essential to their real mission. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. So um, to use some of, you know, the integral theory language, you know, the, we have individuals who are operating at a, at a world-centric level in an ethnocentric organization or institution or construct. Mm-hmm. And so that, that the decision that they made did not make sense, in fact, was he- heavily criticized by a lot of his peers, a lot of my peers, mm-hmm. and others in the military establishment. You know, on the one hand, uh, Murphy is honored for um, his actions and, you know, received a Medal of Honor for it. But on the other hand, behind closed doors, there's a lot of criticism that, you know, they made the wrong decision, you know, and, and that they should have been acting through more of that ethnocentric, you know, point of view of, hey, this is the, you know, this is the mission, the mission trumps, the mission of, uh, of the American in the uniform trumps, you know, yeah. uh, anything else. Um, but, then, but like you said, the, when, when an individual, you know, kind of steps up his consciousness to be more of a, a world-centric warrior, then they, they're going to make different decisions. And the institution, you know, is going to have to change as well when there's a critical mass of individuals, and I'm speaking not just the military institutions, I'm talking about all of our institutions will have to evolve. Either, that, either they'll decay and, and break apart or they'll have to evolve as more and more individuals kind of step up to this world-centric point of view. Yeah. And I love how you frame it as a story because I'd never thought about it that way. You know, I was thinking it more in the context of just an individual's consciousness, but that's heavily influenced by the stories we tell ourselves, which are so deep. What, I, what blew me away with um, the More Beautiful World book was just this idea that, my gosh, you know, even the story of our, uh, just to how we transact and our economy and um, our relationships together in community and in society are all, you know, kind of scripted through this, you know, long-term cultural story that's been evolving. And it's not really, like you say, effective and it, it separates us. So can, yeah. you, can we talk a little bit more about that and, you know, some of those stories that really separate people and um, cause us to have, find such friction now in our social, you know, yeah. relationships? Yeah. You know, um, I think I'm, I'll enter into that with one more observation about this particular story. Sure. Um, which is that transitioning to uh, a world-centric view, as you call it, I think the transition is deeper than merely making different rational calculations sure, of absolutely. who will suffer and who will benefit. 
Right. Uh, it's also about listening to a deeper logic, like the logic of the heart. Right. Um, so, you know, in that moment, like they might have had a thousand reasons why they should kill those two shepherds. Right. Um, and they probably could have constructed a story in which it would be better for the world if they did. Right. True. You know, yep. but, but, you know, like you can always construct a story to justify an action. Right. And they listen to something else. Right. And I think that, that in the transition that we're in our, because we are leaving behind the story of separation and I will describe that briefly, yeah. but because we're leaving behind this familiar story, which provides a map for us, it provides decision-making procedures. Uh, it says, you know, you, you add up the likely risks, uh, the, the causes, the effects, you know, the benefits, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. potential losses, you add those up and you, you make the decision that maximizes the benefits and minimizes the losses mm-hmm. as defined by this goal. Right. You know, that's, that's how you make a decision in the old story. Right. Um, and that works if you have uh, very clear maps and, and benefits and, and risks and you have that all mapped out. Right. But we're entering this uncertain territory where we just don't, we just like, we're losing our confidence in mm. the tools mm-hmm. that we've been using to manipulate the world mm-hmm. and in our understanding of the world. Like a lot of people on a personal level are going through this, this um, breakdown of their story of self. Right. Where it's like, oh my God, it could happen through a, you know, a health crisis or a marital crisis or a financial crisis, losing your job, um, your or a teenager problem. Something, mm-hmm. you know, something happens that that obliterates mm-hmm. the story that we call normal. Right. And then you're thrust into this zone of I don't know what's real anymore. I don't know who I am anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to to achieve what I want anymore. I don't even know what I want anymore. Maybe. Mm. Uh, and, and it's this kind of sacred time, this space between stories that is essential if anything new is going to arise. Mm-hmm. You know, the old has to fall apart. So I think this is happening not only on an individual level, but also on a cultural level. Right. Uh, so our, our social story, it's really even a civilizational story or a mythology that's been with us for a long time is falling apart. And it said, it said, you know, who you are is a separate individual in a universe of other that is governed by mathematically, mathematical forces, you know, mm-hmm. forces of physics. Uh, and it's a whole bunch of stuff outside of you. And there are these other competing individuals and, and their self-interest is opposed to your self-interest. We're all in competition with each other. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, your well-being comes through controlling what's outside of you. And mm-hmm. in the military, you know, you got to control the perimeter, mm-hmm. right? You know, you have to establish control over the hostile forces right. outside. So military thinking is embedded in a much deeper kind of cultural thinking that goes back thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that well-being comes through the conquest of nature and through the conquest of self, mm-hmm. uh, through the, through the disciplining of the inner wild. Right. And, and, we're emerging now from that, you know, seeing that our conquest and domination of nature has brought us um, into crisis mm-hmm. and that, that these um, suppressed and denied aspects of ourselves come out in 
violent and distorted ways mm. when they are suppressed. Right. And instead, so instead we're, we're moving to a, toward what I call the new story, but it's also very ancient of interbeing, mm-hmm. which says that who I am is the totality of my relationships. And what happens to you is happening to me too. Mm-hmm. And everything I do, even on a small micro scale, affects the whole cosmos. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and this is, I think it was, you know, the millennials, like, like these guys you were talking about, they're, they're much more than our generation. Mm-hmm. They're born into that right. new story. Right. And, and it just like, no matter how uh, intensively they are trained to be killers, they, it runs against their nature. You know, right. like, like, and in that key moment, they, they, they acted from that understanding that this person is not separate from me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's called compassion. Mm-hmm. And I think one symptom of that is just the incredibly high level of PTSD and, and mm. suicide and depression among military people and veterans, you know, like, right. like we're just getting more and more resistant, I think, to seeing other people as others right you know like in the category of you know terrorist taliban enemy something Mm -hmm. like that some dehumanizing category Mm -hmm. not that it still doesn't happen a lot right but but and and, you know that that's the um the puzzling conundrum of the warrior is that even in a highly evolved you know spiritually interbeing society um, not all beings are evolved and there are um you know, there are and there will be a need to protect and preserve order and, and um, life, you know. So uh, I have a, a beautiful poem that I read to my academy guys on a graduation, and it's written by an Apache scout in 1807. It's called The Forgiveness Prayer. And what he's saying, essentially, he's asking forgiveness from grandfather, right, from his God, um, because he's now got to pick up his lance and, and fight for his tribe, and that, that he says, you know, he, he, he loves his enemy as he loves his tribe. But now he's got to pick up the lance to, you know, essentially to serve and protect. And, and there's no question in my mind that he has that sense of, you know, in the way he writes and the way the, what I know about some of, the, um, some of the native traditions, they lived largely from a, a sense of community and, you know, and you use the word inner being but they still trained as warriors and they still understood that, you know, they're not going to lay down and let, you know, someone who's operating at a, you know, an ethnocentric or, or an egocentric level of development to come kill them. Right. And so it's an interesting conundrum because I've, I've experienced this myself, it, you know, it, as a Navy SEAL evolving in my own growth, you know, I found uh, war, you know, to be anathema. And a lot of my peers, you know, uh, who were more evolved did as well. And they truly were those types of warriors who thought, you know, hey, this is a last resort. And, you know, we, we, we proceed extremely cautiously into battle. Um, but at the same time, our sense of duty is, you know, the sheepdog to protect and to serve, you know. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there's never a time to fight in this universe. Right. Um, but often if we're sitting if we're standing in a story that the story of evil, that people do bad things because they're just bad people. Right. Therefore, if you're in that story, then the only solution is to stop that person by force. Right. 
But if you're standing in a different story that says that person is doing what they do because of the totality of their circumstances, then force may not be the best response. Right. Uh, You might be able to change the circumstances. Right. Absolutely. You know, and, and, I was reading some stuff about um, Cambodia, mm. uh, you know, and like how the Pol Pot regime arose and how the, you know, the genocide there happened. And basically, you know, these, these very pre-modern peasants uh, in Cambodia, Laos, you know, Vietnam, I mean, they were carpet bombed oh, yeah. uh, for, for years and the casual, and these are like completely like these people are so, so, you know, we might call them backward. I mean, they're so, um, so remote, yeah. you know, they don't even know what the United States is, right. you know? Right. I mean, these are, are like very simple people, right. you know, living in a very, very traditional way. And then like, you know, death rains down from the sky and the whole social order is, is ripped apart. And, you know, you, a certain amount of that happens and and the 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 trauma mm. is just so tremendous that eventually you know they rose up and they found whatever person to blame that they could which was the educated elite you know right. mm-hmm. whoever and then something similar is kind of happening in the middle east right where you know before you know before 1992 you know iraq was um, a fairly well functioning society you know i mean it was politically repressive, but you know, like everybody had jobs. There was universal free medical care, universal free education, you know, like Mm -hmm. people would go to work, they would feed their families, you know, as a functioning society. Right. And then over, you know, a decade or more of war, it just, the, 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 the breakdown on every level is so profound that of course, you know, people are attracted to really radical ideas and to desperate acts, you know? And so when you understand the deeper context and under, like, that's what I do whenever I, see the news, you know, of, of some heinous atrocity, mm-hmm. I think, what would it take for me to do that? Mm. You know, what would it take for me to walk into a theater and gun people down? Uh, no. like, what would have had to happen to me? Right. You know, and mm, speaking of that, there was, you know, remember the Aurora shooting mm-hmm. in the theater there? Right. Here's a good example of the warrior four men there died because they interposed their bodies in front of their girlfriends. Oh my gosh. Yeah. To take the bullet. Right. You know, like when we, when we talk about, you know, nonviolence or compassion, we're not talking about right. being a shrinking lily. Right. Absolutely. You know, right. Like there's such thing as courage. Right. Wow. That's an uh, amazing example. Yeah. And I love this idea that, you know, working in, an, in a world of absolutes, like we're good and they're evil, just does beget more of the same. You know, and I, I look at the, some of the social programs, like the war on drugs and the war on yep. poverty and the war on terrorism. Uh, every one of these so-called wars has exacerbated the problem by all yeah. measures, by all statistical yeah. measures and, and real measures. And yet, you know, we continue to use the language. We continue to throw more money and throw more bombs and bullets at, at a program that obviously, you know, doesn't work. And, um, so, you know, I just wonder, I think, you know, it's got a, it's like a bottom up revolution, not in the Mm -hmm. sense that there's going to be a revolution, but in the sense that, you know, as, as more and more people 
sense this inner being and, and are unwilling to act out of the old stories, then it'll force change from the inside out. And that, that's kind of a, yeah. a hopeful view, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I, like I'm maybe a, uh, inveterate optimist, but right. I even see this shift happening among, among the elite, like, like the story of, you know, America against the bad guys, you know, confronting America's adversaries and, and this kind of, you know, stereotyping of, of whoever Putin, you know, or, Mm -hmm. or whoever it is as the bad guy du jour, like it's still, it's still happening. You know, we Mm -hmm. still have a foreign policy based on that, but I get the sense that even the people putting these ideas out there don't really believe them themselves. Right. It's almost like they're kind of going through the motions, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I'm but there's, there's, too optimistic, but. there's so much uh, momentum, and that's the challenge. You know, yeah. in societies and institutions in those societies develop momentum, and we have a lot of momentum. You know, and the other thing that I was thinking about while we're talking, you know, is we're, we're really, you know, speaking from kind of an American perspective. But I wonder, you know, because, you know, look at what's happening with Russia and Putin trying to essentially reestablish the energy of the Soviet Union, you know, maybe not the actual borders or structure, but the energy of, of that and the um, um, kind of the pride and the um, esprit de corps, so to speak, that the society has around being Russian and their strength and all that. And he's really just, once again, replaying the script that that culture has gone through, which really almost does need in their structure, in their, in their, in their uh, developmental context, they do need a czar or a dictator really to hold them together. You know, that's another example of a, a culture that wasn't ready for democracy. You know what I mean? So I guess my question is, do you think, or do you see the same type of um, consciousness shift in places like Russia and China, or is this really uh, mostly a Western thing where, you know, the younger generations and some, some other, you know, intelligent elites who are also, you know, starting to, to feel this kind of angst with the Western model. Is this a global phenomenon is my simple question. Yeah. I think that the consciousness shift has a different flavor, uh, in different places. Right. Um, and that each place I go to is maybe more stuck in certain ways right. uh, to more wedded to old stories, but more open uh, in other ways. Right. You know, there's ways in which uh, Russia and China, where people there are um, more evolved hmm. in their consciousness than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, India, I especially noticed that. I mean, the level of intelligence in India uh-huh. Uh, the ability to grasp subtle concepts, you know, and, and it was, it was astonishing, you know, mm. I, it, uh, compared to what I was used to. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, personally, I'm not so sanguine about, uh, American democracy and how democratic we are actually, mm-hmm. but we do also like, you know, ha- we have our gift to offer the world as well. For sure. Yeah. And that gift is something entirely separate from the usual American exceptionalism and, and, and the the story that we've been living in. Right. Uh, but there's, yeah, a real like kind of goodness, (laughs) generosity in the American people. There is. And and the entrepreneurial spirit is a, is a gift to the world. And some of the, you know, look at the, some of these social entrepreneurs who are just bypassing, 
yep. bypassing government bureaucracy to try to solve some of the problems of the third world with mm-hmm. technology, you know, like, uh, you know, fresh water, for instance, and um, solar power and, and ubiquitous Wi-Fi so that everyone in Africa can have a cell phone, which puts them in business, right? Um, so, so that's all coming from the American entrepreneurial spirit and not from the corporate structures or governmental structures. Um, and so there is kind of a, I agree with you, we, our gift is not our military might. I mean, that, I, I believe there has been positive that has come out of that quite a bit in, in maintaining some sort of balance over the last 50 years, which has allowed some, some level of prosperity to, to bubble up and to make every, you know, the entire world um, a safer and a more prosperous place. But at the same time, I think we've also abused that power. But anyway, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm digressed uh, there a little bit. But Yeah, you know, I, I think that, that this transition that we're going through will have many, many thresholds, mm-hmm. uh, many initiations. And each one brings us to question more and more deeply the things that we've taken for granted mm-hmm. and the story that we've lived in. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of these that I just kind of came into my mind as you were talking is the story of, of development, the story that says that um, modern technology makes life better. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had this experience of, of you know, going to you know, India or Africa or somewhere where, where even Afghanistan, someone... I was talking to a, I think I might have put the story in my book. I can't remember. A, a woman, she was a, she had been in the military and she went to Afghanistan afterwards, you mm-hmm. know, to a, a village. Because mm-hmm. um, she wanted to, as a civilian, you know, she wanted to see like, what, what, what you know, what is this country, right. you know, from another view. Right. And she went there and she was received in this absolute, absolutely destitute village mm. as a VIP. Okay. You know, no one knew her even, but she shows up there, you know, they, they have nothing. They have dirt floors, you know, they have like not enough clothes. They, they don't even have food security, but they serve her tea, which is like the, the only commodity mm-hmm. that they have in the whole village. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like this, this tea that they give her represents like this family's entire financial net worth, <laughs> you know, Holy cow. and, and she said, and they have no technology. You know, they're living in a very, very traditional way. And she said, these people are the happiest people I've ever met, mm. filled with joy, mm-hmm. and, they're most, and the most generous people I've ever met. Fascinating. And you think, like, what do they have that we don't have? Right. If you, if you define wealth as feeling free to be generous, mm-hmm. you know, what do they have that we don't have? And, and they have... Um, an abundance of time. Mm-hmm. They're never in a hurry. Mm-hmm. The pace of life is slow mm-hmm. in these agrarian cultures, right. you know, mm-hmm. and that's another kind of wealth. Right. And, and like, I'm not, you know, an anti-technologist. I think that all of our gifts, this is what I write about in the ascent of humanity. A bit. Right. You know, I think all of our gifts are here for a purpose, right? But it can be a trap to, or a, a kind of a blind alley to just validate our own gifts correct, and not recognize the gifts that other, other cultures have preserved. And, and there's something about like that, that way of life, you know, a village where, I mean, I think one reason that they are, that they feel free to be generous is because their entire society is based on mutual aid. Right. You know, people take care of each other. Right. They, if your house burns down, the neighbors get together and build you a house. Right. You know, and, and everybody knows how to do that. So they're right. not dependent on money. 
Right. They're dependent on each other. Right. So their whole lives, they see that if you're in need, you will be taken care of. Right. So yeah, why do I need to hold on? Why do I need to control? Right. You know, I can I can be generous, and so I think that that like, that way of life calls to me and mm-hmm. calls to a lot of people. You know, we want community. You know, mm-hmm. we want authentic mm-hmm. relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think that as our society breaks down, and it's impossible to deny that it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at you know Congress. You know, yeah, right? Our, our structures as as that breakdown happens, it it puts us into a state of humility, right? Where we're like. Yeah, you know, I'm not so sure anymore that our way is the best. Right. There's some beautiful things about it, mm-hmm. but I'm not so sure. And I would like to learn right. from the cultures that we've marginalized and the and the people that we've marginalized and the mm-hmm. ways of thinking right. and the practices, the spirituality and even shamanic practices. Sure. You know? Yeah. Like all the things that we've marginalized by saying, oh, it's not modern, it's not, right. you know, it's whatever. Like now we're like yeah, you know, maybe there's something there for us. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I was, <laughs> I've had two thoughts running through my head while you've been talking this last few minutes because it's just fascinating to me. One is, you know, I grew up in upstate New York in a rural kind of farm agrarian mm-hmm. culture. Bef- you know, when when we literally see this phone, I, I, I got this cool phone because nice. I can plug it into my iPhone and pretend, you know, that I'm not yeah, a real phone. <laughs> I'm not plugging yeah. the technology. But we used to have one of these with a little dial and a party line when I was a kid. And yeah. my mom, you know, shared a garden, a very beautiful garden with uh, a woman who lived on a, a friend of ours who lived on a, a farm. You know, we didn't live on a farm, but we, we'd go help work the farm, work the garden, bale the hay. And, you know, uh, we would share a cow with them. They would, you know, they would slaughter one of their cows in the winter and, you know, we would take by half and they would eat the other half. And so we had fresh vegetables from the garden. We had our own meat. We went to the corner grocery store when we needed some extra provisions and we were put on an invoice and we were invoiced every month. And then if we got sick, we walked over to the doctor's office and same thing. He took care of us and the doctor invoiced us. There was no insurance. There were no credit cards or they were just starting and there was no internet and there was no even cell phones and it was slower and everyone was happy and it was fascinating because, uh, of course, the world uh, structurally, institutionally was growing fast around us, but it was almost like a native agrarian culture, except we had cars and, you know, we had, my, my father had a business and a job to go to. But, you know, the kids and the mothers really experienced that at a much deeper level than today. Now, fast yeah. forward, a lot of that through, through, you know, ignorance has been obliterated and consolidated. But as what I see is is will happen is as these institutions, as you say, break down. You know, there's no there's no choice but to go back to the local, go back to you know community uh, uh, gifts and, and um, sharing society. You know, and I've seen little pockets of this already started to pop up with shared community gardens and yeah. and stuff and local script currency and those types of things. Right. There's no choice but to go back to that local, but still be able to leverage some of the cool power of technology such as, you know, social networks and being able to organize, you know, across communities, um, different endeavors through the different technology and tools that we now have. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I love what you say that, that everything that we have and, and, you know, our gifts in our culture exists for a reason. And so, and everything has a positive and a negative, right? And so we can focus all on the negative and the destruction and power projection and all that. But by focusing on the positive, we can also see that, you know, that 
technology and some of the creativity and the entrepreneurial spirit of the West is is um, unlocking a new era of abundance, which will have to be experienced at a at a local level, and which supports this idea of interbeing, right? And that is yeah. a, that's a more beautiful world, I think, that will evolve eventually. Yeah, I mean, I I. I might phrase it somewhat differently, but I, sure. I, I resonate with the spirit of what you're saying. <laughs> no, really. That's yeah. my Navy SEAL brain just trying to make sense of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Um, you know, we, don't, we don't have much more time because we've been going at this for a while, but I would like to just get your view on um, what you think like, the economy would or should look like or could look like um, you know, in, in a more functional manner. Because I, I think you wrote, a whole, you wrote a whole book called Sacred Economics, and it's just really kind of fascinated with what you think about fiat money and, you know, yeah. debt and credit. Is it, I don't know if you can um, summarize yeah, I mean, some ideas for us. Yeah, those, that takes a bit of groundwork to lay out my ideas about money system and stuff. Okay. Um, but I think that, like, it's good to start at a naive place mm-hmm. and ask naive, seemingly naive questions. Uh, for example... I mean, this is related to what we were talking about just now. Uh, we have hundreds of years of labor-saving devices being invented mm-hmm. uh, that allow us to do things much more efficiently mm-hmm. than we did before. Like your, your, your rural upstate New York community, it wasn't very efficient. No, right. You know? But people were less busy then, weren't they? Right, big time. Why is that? Why, as we develop more and more technology, each item of which is makes life more efficient and saves time. Mm-hmm. Why do we become busier and busier? Interesting, yeah. And, and that business isn't leading to increased uh, wealth or, you know, on, no. on average, you know. No, nor increased leisure. I mean, increased leisure. Right? right? Leisure peaked in 1973. Right, interesting. And this has been a question for hundreds of years, you know. Um, the, the, in, the, in the Industrial Revolution, futurists were saying, very soon, uh, we're going to have tremendous amounts of labor, labor uh, of leisure, because a machine can do the work of a thousand men. Mm-hmm. So soon, each person will have to work only one thousandth as hard. Mm-hmm. And the same thing w- with the computer for mental labor. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it used to take a long time to do the accounting. Right. You had to add up long columns of figures. You know, right. and now you can do it at the touch of a button. So we should be working hardly at all, but instead, we're working just as hard as ever. Why? And, mm-hmm. and the economic reason is that uh, at each moment, we've chosen, instead of working less, we've chosen to consume more. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I write about is how that choice is actually built into our money system. Right. And it has to do with debt, with mm-hmm. debt, basically, mm-hmm. um, and a system that only works if there's growth. Right. And so what is growth? Growth is mm-hmm. either the conversion of nature into products mm-hmm. Or the conversion of human relationships into services. Right. So your village, um, you know, even your your town where you grew up, mm-hmm. there was no insurance. Because right. why? Because people took care of each other. Right. So you take away that and you sell it back. Mm-hmm. That's that's economic growth. Now it's a product. Right. People taking care of each other that didn't contribute to GDP. Someone building their own house, planting their own garden, taking care of their own kids, cooking their own food, doesn't contribute to GDP. Mm-hmm. But when you sell those services instead and build a business on it, um, then, you know, that is an avenue for 
bank lending for, for the flow of capital. The economy grows. There's more employment. Mm-hmm. But is there really more wealth when everybody sends their kids to a daycare center mm-hmm. or gets food at the supermarket deli rather than cooking it mm-hmm. or sends their, old, their, their grandmothers off to the old folks' home? Mm-hmm. So wow. this, these are some of the, deep, the kind of deeper economic questions that I, that I work with. And you know, I write about, well, okay, what would it take? What would have to happen? Uh, for to have a, a, a money system that doesn't grow at the expense of life. Wow. Biological life and human life. Right. Wow. You know what? We're going to have to come back and unpack that one a little bit more sometime <laughs> in the future. <laughs> yeah. My head is spinning with about 100 questions, which, of course, we don't have time for. Holy cow. Um, so... Um, What's up for you now? Are you writing more? Or you, do you have um, any big projects that you want to tell our folks about? Uh, and how can we um, people engage with you? Do you have a blog or some way that people can engage yeah, and learn more? Yeah, I have started kind of writing a blog. Um, my main, web, main website is charleseisenstein.net. .net, okay. Um, I, I haven't, I haven't, I'm thinking of writing a new book. Um, I've been just doing a lot of speaking and writing shorter things for a mm-hmm. while now. Mm-hmm. And... Right now, I'm, I just want to say that I'm feeling uh, quite grateful to be on your show. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I feel like like uh, separate universes are starting to converge. I agree. It's pretty neat. You know? That is neat. I would love to get you um, – I know your schedule is busy, but um, every year we do this retreat in um, San Diego called the Unbeatable Mind Retreat. And uh, we're, we're having it December 4th through the 6th this year. But I would love to get you out next year i know it's a long uh, lead time but that's probably good for scheduling and yeah. have you come out and and engage with the community and maybe uh, give a speech you know and you know, of course we'd um, you know compensate you and everything but that, that would be really neat to find some way for you to connect in person with our community mm-hmm. so that, yeah yeah we could talk about that be fun to do that um yeah yeah i'd be open to that okay cool yeah. and of course if there's any way i can support you or any of us uh, can support you getting the word out uh, this is just one way that we can do that. So we'll be sending this out to our our broader community uh, email list and also our um, you know online community. So I think the message is really important. And like yep. I agree with you, uh, it's nice to see our worlds intersect. Let me uh, know when you do send it out, and I can uh, when it goes live because I think some people in my community would be interested in the dialogue as well. Definitely. Okay, well, we'll yep. do that. Charlie, right. thank you very much. Let me remind everyone: it's Charles. C-H-A-R-L-E-S Eisenstein, E-I-S-E-N-S-T-E-I-N dot net. And um, I highly encourage you uh, to check out his excellent, excellent uh, works, uh, The Ascent of Humanity, uh, Sacred Economics, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. That's such a great title, by the way. It's a mouthful, but... That one's a bit more... uh it's shorter and a bit more accessible than yeah. Two. I would recommend starting with that last one. That's where yeah. I started. But awesome stuff, Charles. Thank you very much again yep. for your time. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Pleasure. We'll talk to you okay. soon. Okay. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that show. That podcast was brought to you by MetLife Defender, complete internet identity protection. You can check out the information at the link for MetLife Defender at our website at SealFit.com. Until next time, train hard, stay safe. Have fun. Who ya? Put your fine out. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen.